Now more than ever, getting your COVID-19 vaccine is the greatest contribution you can make to returning our world to normalcy. And with more locations available to you, it's easier than ever. And not just hospitals and pharmacies either. I got mine at Six Flags. You drive right up and it's all done from the convenience of your own car. I got my vaccine at Disneyland. 2020 was such a difficult year full of worry, and to end that worry at the happiest place on earth was truly magical. And in the end, having so many gather here to get vaccinated, I realized it really is a small world. I didn't even know they were giving vaccines out at Raging Waters. I just went to drink beer in the parking lot and this guy came up to me and said, Hey, you want a vaccine? And I said, Step back, homeboy. I don't want Bill Gates controlling my thoughts. But he showed me his YouTube channel and the science was all there. And, you know, they don't give YouTube channels out to just anybody. This was the real deal. Turns out, there's vaccines all over Raging Waters. I took a plunge on Dr. Von Dark's Tunnel of Terror and when I got out of the water, I was covered in vaccine shots. Those needles were sticking out to me like a Christmas cactus. Arthur Peterson got his vaccine at Knott's Berry Farm, and while he had no negative reaction to the vaccine itself, he is allergic to peanuts, causing him to sound like this. Whether that is an allergy to the actual nut or the Charles Schultz property, science is divided. The closest vaccination site to me was at the Santa Monica Pier, and I had a great time. I rode the roller coaster, uh, I got really good at ski ball, I knocked down all the milk jugs, and they gave me the biggest SpongeBob I've ever seen. And some woman was was just walking around she gave me cotton candy for free and with the money that i i had for the cotton candy i bought a cherry lime ricky at the hippodrome and to end the day i rode the ferris wheel and it was such a clear day that i could see from malibu all the way to redondo beach it was a perfect day oh shoot i forgot to get the vaccine we're at the finish line of this so let's all do our part get the shot so this long nightmare won't have us feeling like it's a small world. I used to be skeptical like you. Now I'm addicted to vaccines. And you can be too. Everything's booked up till September. How do I get an appointment? Together. 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 We can beat this. Oh God. I've been volunteering at my grandparents' bingo night this whole time. Forgive me, Mima. <laughs> Welcome to the 89th episode of Ally Meekly, the podcast that I'll have you saying. This could have been on Zoom, Daniel. Uh, actually, we've been banned from Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a social media platform, but they banned us. Yeah, we were saying, say, hey, take this over to Skype with that sort of, <laughs> with those sort of beliefs. Yeah, with that, with that potty mouth. We kept trying to go into our Zoom room, but the, our Zoom room was padlocked. We can't join Zoom. We can't join Zumba. We're out of all of it. Yeah, our membership to Zuba Mafu has been <laughs> revoked. Yeah, we just... We can't. We gotta be. We gotta be in person. <laughs> you We're, did a uh, Italian mobster hands. That's part of the reason why we got kicked out. Of <laughs> We're gonna be locked out of this field recorder uh, by next month. Um, we have to record on megaphones. Megaphones, the official communication method of racists. <laughs> so hey, uh, hey oh, Greg. Hi. Oh hi, Daniel Zafrin. How hey, are Greg you, Greg Gonzalez? How's it going? Hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. 
for it's asking. The, this is a podcast where we only ask questions and we don't give answers. <laughs> it's still uh, a question to question and nothing gets answered. Okay. Why would you do that? I don't know. Why would you think that I did that? <laughs> Why would you ask? That? <laughs> and who are you to ask that exactly? <laughs> who are you? Who am I? <laughs> so it's May 1st. It is May 1st. We are in the, what season would you call this? I, I like to consider it spring. I, yeah, you know, I'm looking out right now. I'm hearing birds. Uh, they're annoying. It's spring. The plants are doing whatever plants do. It's springtime. The plants are having babies. <laughs> birds are sprouting all over the city. Cars are pollinating. It's beautiful. <laughs> Nature's healing. I get all my honey from uh, the undercarriage of my car. <laughs> I drink gasoline. What uh, I'm saying is I drink motor oil daily. Before we get into anything, we got to welcome a few new Patreon people. I don't believe it. A sucker's born every day. That's what this segment is called. <laughs> Six suckers are born every month. A few of them joined uh, like right at the beginning of the month, which oh, yeah. is like the cutoff for when Patreon kicks in. Yeah. So they have to wait like a whole month before they get a postcard. And also it's right after we've recorded. I've sent all those postcards. I'm not going to do another one. I've sent 20 postcards. Uh, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Don't I know. My hands are in ice for the first three weeks of a month. But this month we've got a few. We have Mark Garcia with a C. Oh, hey, Mark. A C in both. Oh, okay. That's yeah. good. That, that's really good. That, that's a sign of a good person. So uh, I'm excited. <laughs> congratulations on that, Mark. Uh, we've got Chris Bricks, which is with a K, actually. No oh, C. Cool. No C for Chris. No X either for Bricks? There is an X, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So we'll, that could have been a C-K-S, but you chose X. We'll dock points for the missing C on the Chris, but add a few for the X. Yeah, so, so you, you, you're doing pretty good. You break even. You break even. Yeah. You break it even, Chris. Or should I say Chris? <laughs> and then we have William Ruvalcaba. Hey, William. Hey, nice William. Also with no. a C. Oh, there is a C there. No. I check my notes. Actually, there. it's all X's. <laughs> he just signed his name with one big X. And we have Rob Reinhardt. Oh, I hey, keep Rob. thinking is Rob Reiner. Keep piling on those Princess Bride quotes. <laughs> He'll get it. Marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even say it right. That was the only one funny thing about that line. I didn't even say I didn't even sell it. You're never going to be in a Rob Reiner movie. You know, it's inconceivable. Um, <laughs> our final Patreon people came as a bundle. Jack and Barbara Zaffron. Oh, my God. I'm excited about every postcard I send. I mean, it's not like I get exhausted, but I'm still incredibly excited. I cannot wait to send your parents. Well, you'll be happy to know that they opted out of getting postcards. <laughs> You're a kid. I'm still going to... I know your address. I already send them postcards every month because I'm a good son. And we, come on. Your mom's on Patreon, too. Leave my <laughs> parents alone. You send her postcards. I'm not worried about what you're telling my mom and my, my oh. godmother. I don't worry about Wait, that. Wait, your aunt is your godmother, isn't that? Yeah. We've talked about this we before. Have. And then we talked about Rod Serling and his wife taking two separate planes so they didn't crash and die at the same time. And that's the conversation we had. Let's have that one more time. <laughs> They're my parents and my godparents, actually. <laughs> well, Stay away from my parents' mailbox. And these are all the new Patreon people we've got. we got a lot this month. Welcome. I can't wait to send you guys postcards. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to try to keep it legible. No promises. <laughs> I don't. I won't. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you don't know how. You don't know how. I usually write all of my postcards while I'm standing on top of a moving train. <laughs> you only went to medical school that long to learn how doctors write, but to learn nothing else. Lesson one, writing. Oh, I could do this. Lesson two, <laughs> lesson two medicine. What? <laughs> That's what I love. When you sign your name on a prescription, you use only two fingers and try to be Save looking the others somewhere for else. surgery. <laughs> your surgery fingers. Look, let's talk about something we did in the past month. This is a special edition. It this is, is a pandemic because we both got vaccinated. Yes, we did. We could be hanging out in the car right now at long last we could be <laughs> sitting in the car like we love <laughs> doing what we love to do nature is healing we can finally be in the back seat of my car again. <laughs> disclosure here because the city decided that library workers were a higher priority than the they, general public for glendale we got lumped in with education we're like educate like periphery of education yeah, so do so. we so we got the shot a slightly before the general public did which yeah. let the record show i thought was very gross and yeah. sleazy on the library's part too because we were we were open to the public now but at the time we were not open to the yeah. public and they're like yeah t 
teachers and also clerks at the library should get the vaccine at the it's insane but they told me to get it and yeah they told I, me to get it and i said i don't i don't want my brain controlled by bill gates or g i don't want 5g in my bones i'm not ready to be a modem think of the commitment <laughs> i'd rather get injected by elon musk <laughs> mine was at glendale i think adventist which is the, the hospital that i go to for most of my things when i had my kidney stone i went there when i thought i broke my foot at work i went there they're really great at charging me uh crazy prices <laughs> yeah they let us know that that they were going to be opening to us and it kind of seemed weird but i know that they were trying to push to reopen as soon as they could and we had a big scare in december we had been going in at the end of last year and then we had to close because a lot of workers including myself had been exposed to covid i don't know if they're reacting to that but as soon as vaccines became a thing in glendale they're like we need everyone to go ahead and get vaccinated and i wasn't gonna oppose that i was like yeah i'd like to not kill my dad that'd be great the thing that bothered me was that the whole time they were saying like no it's completely safe for all of you to be cramming into the library (laughs) together and then there was like there was a time where every single week like one or two libraries would be shut down because there were outbreaks and then the second the vaccine came out they're like it's so dangerous to be in the library can we go in with the teachers can we go in before doctors actually it was gross i wasn't proud of it but yeah but then i can not wash every grocery it was too tempting (laughs) that i didn't have to shampoo my pineapples before i (laughs) my second shot was on may 1st no, it's not my first. <laughs> and uh, we're sitting in a room together right now. My second <laughs> shot is actually today. Uh, April 1st. I got an April Fool's. That's right. I got an April Fool's, right. which I kept joking that they were going to give me a, like a wacky confetti shot and be like, haha, funny, huh? <laughs> Checked um, your blood with silly string. <laughs> it was weird because both, mine was a walk up and it was like, oh, is this a super spreader event? Because it, yeah. I'm six feet away from the person in front of me, but the person to the left of me in line going in the opposite, like a zigzag line is a foot away from me. <laughs> and then we're all sharing pens. And we're all sharing needles. Yeah. And like, it's weird that everyone's in a while i'm like is it fake <laughs> even if fake. the vaccine's in the room you're protected that's why you were safe you're holding a piece of paper that says vaccine and it's not handwritten it's printed you're good you're you safe just put a band-aid on your arm you're fine the second one was really a celebratory experience because you know there's a lady walking around saying like you know you, you after you get shot you wait for 15 minutes and there was a lot of like congratulations uh, welcome back to the world and you're sort of like <laughs> in that moment i was like oh my god you're right this is the first day of the rest of your life <laughs> then you go out to your car you're like oh yeah i can't, can't. <laughs> time to go back home and wait for the rest of the world to catch up <laughs> i got mine at the wackiest place on earth six flags magic mountain <laughs> the stabbiest place on earth this is the first time the things going in your arm was actually good for you at six <laughs> flags i was really glad that i could go to a drive through one because i i didn't yeah. want to be in that situation where yeah. like i have to cram into this hospital cafeteria or whatever yeah. and get yeah i was really glad that it was in my car i kept sending you pictures you of uh the dancing guy from six flags <laughs> <laughs> look who just showed up to give me the shot daniel does not like memes or sending gifts react as reactions he does not like it which means i do it all the time but like this is the second or third time you've done it they weren't gifts they were just images i saved from google <laughs> it's completely different you have the one kid with the glasses who's like whoa you had another one about I, like you've done it so few times that i remember each time you've sent something it's, it's for me. funny when i do it. the experience that i know that they're closed now but yeah. the experience there was pretty quick like we drove through they took my temperature which you they, pointed a gun at me right yeah now. <laughs> they took my temperature stick them up by the way yeah. um but they used one of the temperature guns and i immediately thought like oh they're gonna do it on my forehead so i like Jesus leaned at them Christ. with my forehead and like no give me your wrist 
<laughs> and then they slapped cuffs on it. <laughs> you yeah. handcuff your head. There's no head cuffs. <laughs> You're violating your parole. <laughs> You're not to be within 100 feet of Sylvester. Yeah, so I went through the whole thing. It took like an, an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And yeah. the shot, it was so... It's the weakest shot yeah. I've ever gotten because yeah. it doesn't really feel like anything and it's so quick. And my first reaction was, did you give me enough? Yeah. It's, you it's, did it, right? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, it goes so quickly. Yeah. It's nothing. And then I'm allergic to... When I was a baby, I was allergic to penicillin. So yeah. they were like, oh, oh brag. Yeah. I've been uh, allergic to penicillin since I was a kid. So like, let's just yeah, respect. You know, a lot of people like to get allergic to penicillin in their 20s. Mm. I turned red as a baby. When I, <laughs> I almost died as a baby. That's right. I don't want to make anyone feel bad. But they were like, oh, you're going to have to wait in the 30 minute line. So I had to wait 30 minutes. Whoa. But then after 15, they're like, he's probably fine. We'll put you in a body bag. We won't, we'll only zip it halfway yeah, up. Bring this with you. Just in case. <laughs> if, you, if you die, come back. I was like, I'm sweating and my skin's turning red. You're, you're good to go. You look fine. Because that's what I was worried about. Because I had to then drive all the way from Santa Clarita oh back. God. And I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna be another crazy death in the, in the, yeah. the first shot. I had no reaction. Yeah. and i was worried like i don't think they did I, it wrong i don't th- i think i got the placebo i yeah. was the control subject <laughs> and then the second one i like i felt like i had a weak cold i felt that way for my second try I, I described it like i felt like i was a pig in a sauna <laughs> i was just so sweaty and it was a like, gross sweaty because it would be hot and then it'd be cold but either way i was like cold and wet for it uh, i was just glad to feel something <laughs> Me too. My, my dad and ada got it on the same day and i was monitoring both of them and they're like we feel fine like my arm sore but no that's it and i was like maybe you didn't do it right like, i was so mad at both of them they didn't feel anything from the second one even no wow you should probably stay away from those i should probably stop you should probably stop dating your dad no dice (laughs) it's an easy experience that everyone should do it i agree so that that was our experience so now you don't have to be scared because us two of the weakest people in the city Mm -hmm. were fine from it two people who've literally reacted to every shot they've ever gotten (laughs) even a headshot (laughs) i got an allergic reaction to that we drove from La Habra to Anaheim on the streets, which is not that far at all. But we passed two coffee shops that I'm like, oh, me and Daniel are going there. We're going to be going there soon. And I was with my girlfriend. And I'm like, no, me and Daniel are going real soon. <laughs> Ada, cover your ears for a second. <laughs> me and Daniel got to go there on date night. Yeah. <laughs> Can you text Daniel for me? Because I'm driving. Let him know that I plan on going to a coffee shop with him. And just him. No one else. It, yes, it will be romantic. <laughs> I'm not quite ready to go to restaurants yet. Yeah, but it's there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, the light is at the end of the tunnel. And oh my God, I'm back at Six Flags and it's a train coming at Wiley Coyote. They're already saying like, all right, get ready for your third shot. Yeah, so, I know. I asked the lady when my dad was getting his shot. Like I wanted to do like a corny, like let's go to Staples and get them <laughs> laminated. Let's get the cards vaccinated too. <laughs> let's get them laminated. And they're like, well, actually you're going to get a booster in six months. Exactly. Yeah. That's what like people are, keep saying, like go to Staples, you don't get it like, how what they're gonna write on sharpie and it's gonna wash off and now people aren't gonna know i have three vaccinations we'll spray paint clear coat they'll write it on sharpie and then get that laminated (laughs) again and it's just gonna be by the time we're thick brick it's gonna be like an award from a for working in your office for 30 years all right so that's enough of last month uh uh, pandemic's over so this month we wanted to concentrate on something that's been going on there there in lines the problem how long has this been going on yeah i was gonna say this is something that's been going on for like 200 years (laughs) because there's been a lot lot of news and horrible stories coming out about racism and violence against Asian Americans. Yeah. And we got a message on Instagram from one of our listeners who is Asian American. And she asked, like, can you, you know, we've talked about Chinatown mm-hmm. and the internment camps and that sort of thing. She had a good idea of how about focusing on instead of talking about and then this tragedy happened yeah, 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 yeah. and then this horrible thing happened. How about we focus on some positive stories from Asian Americans in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like people, organizations yeah. and stuff like that. So that's 
that's what we that's what we decided to do. And I was very interested in Asian American civil rights groups. I kind of want to look at the sixties. I know like there's like famous photos of people like the Black Panthers marching and the uh-huh. Chicano movement, and then there's always like Asian Americans in the group as well holding up their you know their signs for their cause. And I was wondering what that looked like. A lot of it happened in San Francisco, but I know like some of it bled down to LA, and I wanted to know more about those. Well, yeah, you focused more on the organization part. I picked out two people yeah. who were important to Los Angeles Asian American. Right. So yeah, that's what we're going to be sort of an Asian Pride yes month. That's good. <laughs> we're we're commandeering May. <laughs> actually, I think May actually may be Asian American. I think it Pacific. is. Who wore it best though? <laughs> this podcast that a few people listen to one time a month, or uh, you know the national recognition. <laughs> so I'll get it started with my first person. This is a person, Greg. Okay. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But hey, what about that woman? How layered is that? Should I be digging deeper? As with most things, I say no. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. I prefer if you did it. It's best to just the probably fast forward while I say it and never go back. We've talked about the inception of Googie architecture. Yes. So this is someone who both of my people actually. I think we. I know I definitely talked about my second person for a paragraph. Yeah. A long time ago, yes. and I think you kind of talked about this person. I again did probably. when we did the Googie episode. I probably said that she didn't get enough recognition. Yeah. And luckily, you came back and. And did you say anything about being behind the curtain? Yeah, that was my whole thing. Oh no. So we, we've talked about the inception of Googie architecture in our Googie episode, but what we didn't get into that much was someone who was just as involved in it as the others, but never quite got the credit she deserved. Helen Lou Fong. Yes. She was born January 14th, 1927 here in Los Angeles. Her parents were originally from China. Her dad came first to San Francisco. And once he made a little money, he sent back for his wife. And then the two moved to 1220 West 9th Street, which is James M. Wood Boulevard. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of stories lately that are taken because the those mummified babies the found mummified in the basement. Babies. Yeah. The place where they lived, it's now a giant UPS hub. But oh. then it was the Sunrise Laundry, which they owned and they lived upstairs. Of. Uh-huh. The two of them, the parents, they had five kids who they made wash clothes and do something that I always just thought this was a caricature of what like a dork would do. They made them iron socks for people. Oh my God, really? Why would, like, what good does that do you to iron socks? Uh, Literally, I, who's going to see your... If it's like dress socks and a person sitting like I just did right now, a leg over knee. Yeah. Nice crease on your <laughs> socks. But now I'm thinking of in a lot of Asian households, you take your shoes off. Oh, But maybe. I don't know if they were doing laundry for Asian families. Oh, okay. I think this was, you know. You didn't look into that part. No, I didn't look at who the clientele was at <laughs> you didn't Sunrise look Laundry from 1927. <laughs> the idea of ironing socks is absurd to me. It's so funny. It's it's a punishment. <laughs> That's not a job. That's oh, you, you don't want to finish your vegetables? <laughs> you see those socks over there? They belong to white people and you've got to iron them. <laughs> and if there's something wrong with them, they'll let you know. So these kids are ironing socks. Helen Lu Fong is one of these five kids. Her dad, however, felt that the most important thing for her was getting a good education so she could stand on her own two feet as long as those feet had iron socks on them. <laughs> you sound like your socks are wrinkled. The way you walk to me right now, it feels like maybe your socks are wrinkled. You're gliding a little when you walk. How come you're not <laughs> scraping the floor with sharp-edged socks? Um, she was always a good student, and in 1939, she won first prize in a contest for her essay on Americanism at Virgil Junior High, and the combination of that scholarliness and those iron socks sent her straight to UCLA, 1943, and then 
then she went to Berkeley, where she graduated in 1949 with a degree in city planning. In this time, this was an extremely rare accomplishment because not only was she a woman, she was an Asian American woman, yeah. which those types of people yeah. didn't go to UCLA and in Berkeley. That, in that era. In that era. Yeah. And now, <laughs> as long as I have my way. <laughs> Unfortunately, when she graduated, she was not able to get a job, not only because she was a woman, but because she was an Asian woman. Right. So she got her degree, but this yeah. is a, end of the line for you. Yeah, thank you for <laughs> giving us your money. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, one man took a chance on her and hired her to work for him. This was Eugene Choi, who was an architect who designed mostly modernist houses, but also the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association in Chinatown. Oh, yeah? Which I think we talked about in the China. That sounds familiar, yeah. Oh, you're not a member? You're not benevolent? Oh, you don't know about that? Oh, you're malevolent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a different term. Oh, I joined the wrong organization. <laughs> it's next door, the Chinese Consolidated Malevolent <laughs> Association. <laughs> it's all the evil twins of <laughs> all of the people it's at the benevolent church. <laughs> so he designed that and the Cafe Bank, which is also in China. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so he designed that. That's a beautiful building, too. The yeah, Cafe that's Bank. A, a historic. Uh, yeah, I believe I talked about that in the Chinatown episode. Thank you very much. Um, actually, we're talking about Kathy Bank, the cartoon character, oh, and it's going. It ha- it's sweating a lot and it wants chocolate. It's next door also. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole twin thing. But Troy himself had been the first Chinese American to join the American Institute of Architects in California. So he sympathized as a fellow trailblazer. Mm-hmm. He sympathized with Helen's struggle in that regard, but she was still a woman. So yes. he didn't hire her as an architect, but instead she was his secretary. Okay. Uh, here she learned how to do contracts, process payments, and get things organized. But in 1951, he had to lay her off. And now she was back to trying to find a job, mm-hmm. which was hard enough the first time. But this was the 50s and finding a job worked in cartoonish ways and she literally walked down the hall of the same building that Choi had his office in and into the office of our old pals Armay and Davis who had been in that building since 1947 they welcomed Helen in again not as a full on architect but this time she was a junior draftsman couldn't even call her a draftswoman (laughs) she joined at just the moment when they were working on the clock restaurant in Westchester which is considered to be their first Googie project so she was there at the beginning for the creation of Googie just like walking into a random office (laughs) (laughs) yeah she was walking by and they stuck their head out the door is anyone here looking for a job Uh, (laughs) I imagine like they had a drawing on the board of the place and it has like a straight roof and they're like what what needs and then she comes and puts like an yeah, angle on she it she erases part of it yeah <laughs> and puts an angle and they're like oh my god a whole wall that's made of glass like a window yes so along for the whole googie adventure that we talked about before was Helen Lu Fong and she was basically the third phantom head of Arme and Davis's work defining the googie style yeah it should uh, be three names it really should have been three names but I mean we've seen Mad Men that's not gonna they're, they're not gonna put a feminine sounding last name on you hear the last name Fog, you know that's a woman. <laughs> They're not going to put that on the side of a building, which they didn't even have. They were in a- <laughs> So her first big contribution here for Armand Davis was at the Holiday Bowl in Crenshaw. Uh, in particular, their cocktail lounge was her doing. Oh, yeah. The place was called Saki Ba. And mm-hmm. since the owners of the place were Japanese and a lot of the people in the area at the time were also Japanese, she designed it to reflect Japanese culture cool. with an early hint of trademarks of Googie. There was a ceiling designed in Japanese woodwork, but also this gold colored map of like 3d kind of gold colored map of japan the bowling alley was demolished in 2003 but the cocktail bar was so beloved by the community that it was made a historic cultural landmark but all that was saved of it was the facade that is now the outside of a starbucks oh my god (laughs) but at least the facade still there which was helen lu fong's doing that's crazy how like protections work where they're like yeah the sinks can stay everything (laughs) Everything else else has to go (laughs) but in her work on this cocktail bar it was a hint at what would be her 
great contribution, which was basically being the person who created not the exterior look of Googie, but the interior look of Googie. Which is so, just as important. Maybe even more important. So our man Davis were designing the building, yeah. although we'll get into that later, but <laughs> the inside of it, these places was basically Helen Lu Fong. Meaning that feeling of being in a Googie diner, which I'll give examples of later, was designed and created by Helen Lu Fong. That's crazy. To start, she was the one to push for the front of places being big giant windows yeah because one it connected the people inside to the street outside during the car culture of the 50s which was huge so right. nobody would ever be too far from staring at their car yeah. and two it connected people with being able to eat inside but also kind of be outside which was another big thing because this was fair weather los angeles right and nobody wanted to be too far from being able to look at how nice the weather was outside she was Damn. the one sort of like we should do windows yeah i think we talked about it in our googie episode about how that was like a trip like a, a motif of that thing but hearing it explained I'm like oh that's perfect yeah that is absolutely a yeah perfect and, and idea. It, it, it that's why it was done here like people don't in New York City you don't want to have a giant floor-to-ceiling glass window and see rats running by yeah. while you're eating like that is very true in Los Angeles like you want to look outside and all the rats like, are blonde uh, yeah yeah <laughs> They're carrying little surfboards. <laughs> that rat is like a New York Six, but that rat here is like a LA Ten, <laughs> and I mean like ten kids that it has on its back. I mean like it's pounds. In New York, the rating system is weight, but in here <laughs> it's hotness for rats. Rats are so hot. So her quest to connect the outside to the inside also manifested in putting tropical gardens in front of a lot of these places, and then having those same types of plants inside to further the connection and smooth the transition between inside and outside. That's why there's a lot of almost like tropical feel in a lot right. of googie places it's right she wanted that and you're like blowing my mind and small explosions but like i always <laughs> thought small that was, controlled detonations <laughs> i always thought that was like a, a weird sort of like polynesian thing but to hear that explanation that's much better it was just a way to make people feel like they were inside but outside she would have done great in coronavirus she times. yeah i feel like i went inside of that denny's today <laughs> oh i did <laughs> and i refused to put a mask on <laughs> that wasn't me i was in a fugue state so then once you were inside inside of these places she hated things being the color green or blue really? which she felt was sad she thought those two colors were sad she said you've been in places where they had powder blue booths right Need I say more? <laughs> to her, those were just depressing interiors. In sign painting, we were taught to never do lettering for a restaurant in blue because blue is the one color that psychologically denotes decay. Really? Yeah. I guess that's why. I guess that's why I identify with Picasso's blue period. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, like McDonald's is red and yellow. Yeah. Like yeah, that's like browns or yellows or yeah, reds. That's weird. I don't think I've eaten anything blue other than that milk I had on the moisture farm. There's not much. <laughs> blue food yeah not a lot of blue food but also like labeling for food yeah. especially meat it's like you never see a barbecue place i with, love like, blue, blue meat <laughs> oh man <laughs> my favorite meat is blue meat she would have hated eiffel five <laughs> she's blue and if it was also green she also would die <laughs> so instead of blue and green she was all about yellows and whites and yeah. most importantly red because it was an easy color to see from your car on right. the road and it would catch your eye and draw you in just like how cops always spot red cars uh, hungry cops always spot red <laughs> restaurants <laughs> and even beyond that, she was involved in the restaurants she was working on in designing, here we go, the booths, the chairs, the counters, the bar stools, the lighting, the doorknobs, the silverware, the glaze on the dishes, and the look of the menu. Like she was giving input and having a say on Architects all of Architects are involved with the look I of had, the menu? I had no idea. Oh but I guess, when, I guess when you got Arme and Davis involved, like you're yeah, getting the whole Just package. do the whole thing. They'll, all, they'll cook the food for you. <laughs> <laughs> they'll hire all the crew. <laughs> this person's nose 
hasn't doesn't have the right hook on yeah. it. Yeah, it's angled weird. You can't work here. It doesn't well, complement the ceiling. <laughs> you're gonna work here with eyebrows like that and a <laughs> tiling on the floor. Like that. <laughs> she sometimes she was picking out employee uniforms. Really, like she was that involved. She was Damn. also she would also hire artists to make art specifically for that place. So you really were like they were doing it for you. Yeah. Like they were gonna make your place look good. She also made sure the layouts were curvy in a way that would guide the guests and employees to where they were supposed to go. That's great. Was no Corky's didn't have like a curved something does though, but I don't remember what. Uh, I feel like pans. Well, well, hey, well, hey, listen to this. Let's get there. When Some we get of the there. listen to this completely spontaneously. Some of the notable places she worked on were some of the Denny's, Bob's Big Boy, uh-huh. Johnny's Coffee Shop, the one that's now just Bernie's, Bernie's Coffee yeah. Shop, and Socialism <laughs> Store, <laughs> Socialist Headquarters. She worked on the first Norms, and okay. of course, our beloved, not the filming location of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Pans. pans she was responsible for the inside of pans right before pans was set to open she gave it a walkthrough and she didn't like the white tiles behind the counter so she ran over to them and took out some of her red nail polish and covered them in red nail polish and that nail polish stayed on them for 30 years oh my God. until they did a renovation in uh, i guess the 90s which i'm more impressed with the nail polish to yeah, be honest the long How did it not chip so what exactly does that mean that she went to every tile and like i think a dash she of did red? a few tiles she like okay. colored in a few tiles because it right. was too white. Right, so right, she, right. like every four tiles, maybe. Like she a Jackson co- Pollock or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She put Spotted it in Spotted her mouth. And <laughs> I wish I could have seen that, but yeah. that, an insane level of dedication yes. and obsession. Also. Yeah. She always got credit for her interior work at Armand Davis, but in reality, she seemed to be doing a lot of the other work there that she didn't get credit for, like being a client liaison, watching over payroll, making sure people got paid, mm-hmm. and even helping out in some of the overall designs. She was described by people who worked there as, the guiding light that kept the firm going. Like she was the heart of our man Davis. She only allowed classical music to be played in the office. And one guy was whistling one time and she came up behind him and put her hand on his shoulder and said, we don't whistle while we work here. Which I guess when you are responsible for so much of a restaurant success, yeah. I, I feel like that. Coming yeah. from anywhere else, it's the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so she designed a few homes independently and a few things in Indianapolis, Toronto, Dearborn, and Buffalo. But for the most part, she only designed in LA. And the only firm she ever worked for was Arme and Davis. In 1964, they made her an associate at the firm. And really, she was she was right up there side by side with Arme and Davis yeah. overseeing everything. And like we said, it should have been called Arme and Davis and Fong. But yeah. as good as those two were to her and as involved as she was allowed to be she never became a licensed architect because of her gender and her race Mm. so she was never a full-on architect she had a great career but who knows what ceiling she could have reached literally (laughs) (laughs) who knows what angled ceiling what what cantilevered ceiling (laughs) had she been allowed to move up to the next level that's a shame it is a shame she retired in the late 70s but she still did some consulting with them for decades after that until she died april 17th 2005 in glendora of cancer that's a sad way to end this story, but there's really there's not really much else to say other than the next time I'm stacking creamer cups at a diner waiting for my chicken fried steak and staring at the cars driving by, I'll be thinking of you, Helen Lu Fong, and also my chicken fried steak. <laughs> I love when it's such a hard thing to pull off and it can be so annoying when you're not the person, but I really respect a singular vision. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I know it just takes more than just one person, obviously. But when not so, with her. She did everything. But I, I think that's incredible. I couldn't believe what I was reading that she was checking out the glaze on the dishes. <laughs> but hey, let her do it. <laughs> try yeah, and stop try her. Try and stop her. I'm going to be talking about two things. I'll get a skin to it because I wrote all my... Well, app. actually, knowing the name of what, what you're about to be talking about, 
three things a three-headed thing maybe <laughs> i think that you okay we'll get into it i want to focus my second on what came out of the ucla asian american study program a three-headed thing a three th- a three-headed dog cerebus <laughs> okay i'm gonna talk about two things the two main things being the publication ghidra mm-hmm. king ghidra king ghidra <laughs> a little bit about the department at ucla and the term asian american mm-hmm. in quotes in 1969 on campus at ucla five students mike morazi denora gill laura ho colin watanabe and tracy okita founded a monthly newspaper titled Ghidra, kind of named after a Godzilla monster. How can it, okay, how can it be kind of named after this King Kong magazine, not that King, King Kong? Kong magazine. <laughs> what you're thinking of and what Tracy, who came up with the name, was thinking of was King Ghidorah. It's the same thing. Uh, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Okay. Both, if you've heard it both ways. I've heard the monster pronounced both ways. I don't know about the magazine, but I've heard the monster pronounced both ways. Then then at least they had that going for them. Because I, I was listening to an interview, but someone's like, she misremembered the name. <laughs> of Ghidorah and that's why it's called Ghidra I always pronounced it Ghidra but then I saw not the most recent Godzilla movie but the one before that and they kept calling it Ghidra or Ghidorah it'll it'll always be Ghidra to me why haven't you seen Kong vs. Godzilla it's incredible how am I going to see what am I going to pay to see a movie it's on HBO Max I saw it for freeze I don't have HBO Max what do you you think I'm Jimmy Fallon (laughs) the richest man in the world (laughs) which which is is a a really cool name for a magazine yeah it is I know I wanted to steal it I'm like oh can I sell it I can call something <laughs> like uh, uh, maybe uh, Son of Godzilla <laughs> magazine or we're going to come up with a new podcast it's called Mecha Godzilla Ghidra the publication that is was a radically progressive political publication that was created in the early days of Asian American activism that term Asian American alone requires a bit of a detour so let's okay. take it although the first head of Ghidra the first head of Ghidra <laughs> although we're talking about two UCLA alumnus or alumni they were not students nor in Los Angeles for this so I felt weird dedicating a whole segment to their political awakening in Berkeley <laughs> which is not in Los Angeles. Which is the place to go for a political awakening. <laughs> so I couldn't dedicate a whole segment to Emma G and Yuji Ichiwaika, founders of the Asian American Political Alliance in Berkeley, California. But that was just a year before Ghidra starts, 1968, and the term, like I keep saying, the term itself, Asian American. The term did not exist as an umbrella term before 1968. You identified as your particular Asian subgroup, which is like Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, Thai, so on, so on. Or as other people refer to you, Oriental, which white America seems to think is appropriate and respectful, and uh, it's kind of not. As hang on. <laughs> Slow down. Now. Wait a minute. As Richard Aoki put it, Oriental was a rug that everyone steps on. So we ain't no Orientals. We're Asian American. It was like a term of pride. Some of us might take for granted the term Asian American, not realize. Yeah, that. it's crazy to think of like someone had to come up with that. Yeah, and it's like not even that old. I took for granted that it was, oh, that's what you respectfully call somebody. It wasn't like a political coinage that people fought to get yeah. recognized by. They wanted to unify all the Asian ethnic subgroups together in one umbrella term. And the Asian American Political Alliance, or APA, as I'll call them. Did you say GAPA? <laughs> the, the, I forget what his subtitle is. And he also doesn't fight Godzilla, but he is in the Godzilla universe. Thank you. Yeah. The trichlorian monster it's something like that you, i'm not kevin smith and you don't have to call kevin <laughs> oh smith. man you have to call your life not that one yeah <laughs> also not that could one. i phone a friend what if instead of like because i would never phone a friend what if it's just text a friend like you're in who wants to be a millionaire yeah. and it's the million dollar question and you use text a, friend, text a friend but you have to wait like 30 minutes for <laughs> them to respond and everyone's just waiting for you to answer the question the bubble keeps popping up that they're writing and then disappearing maybe um, maybe he's busy do you want to call him no we don't call each other we don't have that sort of we relationship <laughs> so these two people 
created APA, as I'll be calling it. And it's very much in line with the African-American civil rights movement, the Black Panther movement, and the Chicano movement. Like, it's in that league of, mm-hmm. like, the civil rights movements of the 60s. Um, and gay rights. Because I, oh, I, right. I was looking back on the, like, black cat stuff. Uh-huh. And it was that. It was gay groups, black groups, Chicano, like, Latino uh-huh. groups. And I th- believe also Asian groups were all like, let's all just take this moment and stand yeah. up together all across the city. And that's what's kind of wild about that era is that there was such unity that it could be like, I mean, like, it yeah. happened like Simpler last times. Year, yeah, simpler times. Last year, I guess that happened too, where everyone was just like, our group is against the cops too. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the witches stand against, <laughs> the witches of Eastwick stand against cops. So at the forefront of the AAPA APA were Emma G and Yuji Icho Aika, two UCLA grad students. Emma G, I couldn't find too much about, sadly, because a lot of times she's listed as either the girlfriend or later wife of Yuji. And the fact that I couldn't find out more really sucks, but she's listed at some point as a Chinese-American activist, and that's secured in her formation of APA. Yuji, a man of Japanese descent, was born in San Francisco and at the age of six was interned along with his family along with the rest of the Japanese citizens in his country in a camp during the Pacific part of the war. The Icho Aikwa family were housed at the Topaz internment camp in Utah which is like being locked in a prison within a bigger prison. <laughs> the prison of Utah. <laughs> After the war the family came back to nothing. His father who was 62 had to start over as a day laborer. His sister worked as a live-in maid to get herself through UC Berkeley. She told him she was going to become a quote super Jap so superior that nobody <laughs> least of all a white person would say that she was inferior was that her take on the lenny bruce the lenny bruce super jew yeah that's her <laughs> she's so inspired by something that yeah. happened much later what she meant was she wants to be a, a very political quote-unquote comedian not usually that <laughs> funny but just kind of you know was f- influential funny at a very early point and then became obsessed with litigation great side character in Maisel. she went on to earn her biochemistry degree in three years in his oh my teen- god yeah that right there she's super. earned her title <laughs> she's earned her title well in his teens yuji found work with the Mexican migrant farm workers planting 800 acres of salary in Lodi. There he saw the injustices and discriminations the migrant farmers faced. And as soon as he turned 18, Yuji joined the army and was a private in Germany. And while a soldier, he saw a white man refusing to take orders from a black second lieutenant. After the war, he attends UCLA and he graduates in 1962. After that, he moved to New York City to attend Columbia University to study Chinese history, but left the program not long after starting. But it's at Columbia where he meets Emma G. In 1966, he travels to Japan for the first time and is inspired to study Japanese as a language and pursue research on the Japanese immigrant experience in the U.S. That leads him to the MA program in Japanese history at UC Berkeley, which he completed in 1968, which is the year we're going to be talking about. The year of the Ghidra. The Bay Area in the late 60s was a place to be if you wanted to be awakened by activism. <laughs> and him and Emma G did. At 33, he... Do we need to do another 60s recap right now? Yeah, we'll do a 60s recap. Hair is on the big screen. <laughs> and on your body. We start playing the opening guitar riff of Smile on Your Brother. Hippies walk down the street, do a peace sign. <laughs> Again, the lady at Kent State is crying over the dead body. Helicopters going into Vietnam. The Dick Van Dyke show is coming to an end. <laughs> an era closes. Um, the monsters are just getting started. <laughs> Charade is the biggest thing that ever happened. This happen. is my alternate side, like the completely unpoliticized side of the 60s that I'm aware of. The cat skills are booming. Everyone's playing Twister. Beaches are packed with white people. Little Gidget's out there trying to surf with the boys. <laughs> the endless summer just won't end. And that's the 60s. <laughs> at 33, he and Emma G were full-fledged activists. The two had gone through the roster of the Peace and Freedom Party. That's my favorite Janis Joplin song. <laughs> Is that Janis Joplin? That's Janis okay, Joplin. Okay, good. I, think I didn't want to sound like an idiot. The two had gone through the roster of the Peace and Freedom Party and located all the Asian American names, called them, and organized APA as the first pan-Asian American hmm. political group. Another really early member of the group was Vicky Wong, a 17-year-old first-year student at UC Berkeley. She got interviewed, but she was saying, like, the peace movement was led by whites, Wong said. And then I joined, I tried to 
join the Black Panther Party in Oakland, and then they told me you can't because you're not black. So they said you should try to form your own group and i thought well what is my group hang on i've never thought about that i I guess it makes sense but if i wanted to join the black panther party i would be denied yeah you can like support them yeah that makes sense yeah oh yeah that makes total sense it makes sense but i never thought about like i can't be a black panther (laughs) (laughs) you sound so sad it's a little disappointing it's It's a a little little sad sad. (laughs) it's a little bit sad that's fine there's a lot of stuff that the black panthers could do. are there any like white groups i could join Oh, that's a shame. They're all in Orange County or yeah. Palmdale. That's a shame. <laughs> Complaining. How come there's no white groups I can join? There's no groups just for white people. <laughs> and so his political awakening begins. <laughs> in the wrong direction. In the complete wrong direction. So they told her, like, you have to form your own group. And she thought, like, well, what is my group? They're in that very first session at Emma and Yuji's apartment on Hearst Avenue in Berkeley. There's now a sign there at a plaque. They, along with Vicky and a handful of other members, coined the term Asian American. It was like someone remembers being there. Yeah. And they were like, hey, we should come up with this way to call all that, of asians that's also it's kind of crazy to because yeah like asia is uh-huh. huge yeah yeah it's the and, biggest con- and or, yeah hey, no it's wh- not the biggest continent it's the biggest country geography though. yeah asia's the biggest country. country yeah no it's the biggest continent i'm like trying to go through geography lessons in my head let me go get my tape measure <laughs> um it's crazy that it is all korean rights is tied up with cambodian rights yeah. like it, it's it's crazy that yeah. it's all one thing I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just I, crazy I, to think about. With all of the internal struggles within different countries, yeah. that there's still yeah. a term to, to uh, bind everybody. I wonder if that's a positive thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, too, because um, it must be kind of nice to have an umbrella term, but don't you want to be celebrating your particular yeah. descent? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Two people who aren't Asian at all, uh, we don't know. Let's pontificate on this. Let's really draw it out. <laughs> Just like we said earlier, we ask questions. We don't We don't ask answers. <laughs> we ask answers. But she was saying like, you know, Vicky was saying, I went in Oriental and I came out Asian American. That's mm-hmm. like how powerful this meeting in this little apartment was. Not a large, co- they were, like, it wasn't like a large committee or a focus group. They didn't like go through different names. It was like six college students in the apartment wanted something to change and were committed to following through. Yeah. You know? First thought, best thought. First thought, best thought. <laughs> Their biggest moment is during the third world liberation front strikes from november of 1968 to march of 1969 which was the longest student strike in u.s history there's asian american african-american chicano native american students all clashed with administrators and police to establish what they called third world college what we now know as ethnic studies the ethnic studies department where curriculum would be designed for and taught by people of color hang on so you're telling me i can't teach a class (laughs) my dreams (laughs) are getting crushed left and right you're gonna say that i can't teach a native american literature course how come (laughs) i read sherman alexi how come they also protested to increase the number of students and faculty of color at the schools. A second strike took place at UC Berkeley from January to March 1969. And at San Francisco State, APA, the Intercollegiate Chinese for Social Action Group, and the Filipino-American Collegiate Endeavor formed the Asian contingent of the student-led strike there. So they were very active in these protests for the Third World Liberation Front. Uh, these strikes were huge because, first of all, they were highly publicized. So a lot of people in this country saw them. And the images of Asian Americans protesting loudly and proudly challenged the idea of popular depictions of, like, the quiet subservient asian american mm-hmm. like that this isn't the people that you're seeing on tv who are yeah. like protesting hard Which i never really understood that stereotype yeah. of the quiet because like i think my high school might have been majority korean mm-hmm. at the very least most of my friends were asian yeah and i never understood the quiet subservient no. thing nobody i knew was like that <laughs> quiet people are quiet and loud people are loud yeah. if I anything thought, i like, was the quiet absur- <laughs> subservient one <laughs> It's weird that that was a thing. I guess like depictions in media certainly serve that idea. But it really is like, it must have been like white America didn't know any Asian American people 
people other than yeah. like people who owned businesses they went to so they didn't really yeah, know, they didn't know yeah exactly but like yeah so if you didn't know any asian people and you only knew it from the people who own the businesses you sometimes went to and the depictions in TV and movies, like, yeah, you're going to walk away thinking all Asian people are like that. It's almost like appropriate representation in media matters. It's strange how people are fighting that and they're (laughs) calling stuff gratuitously diverse and you think you're my friend? Disney and their obsessive wokeness. It's almost like they're trying to fight something that the 20th century like really (laughs) pounded into. Disney helped. Disney helped. Fully helped for all of their existence (laughs) up to maybe recently and even also kind of recently. (laughs) Apple as a group ends in 1969 which is weird they were only like I think for two years but like their movement really like moved forward the activism they pushed for was growing Yuji was then recruited as an instructor at UCLA of the first Asian American studies course there which he took part in establishing the Asian American studies center there like he and a group of others built that I looked up the name I forget what it was but the word oriental was thrown in there I'm like that's probably why they needed to change that in 1972 Yuji and Emma moved to Southern California permanent like where he continued teaching and researching Emma G became a scholar of Asian American woman's history as well as a writer and a labor activist so these two were like prominent in that movement so with the term asian american out there demanding all kinds of respect and the asian american activism and civil rights movement churning out change it seemed like a good time to start a radical student-run newspaper <laughs> 1969 okay war across the usa we all know the Stooges song it was a good time for ghidra why ghidra <laughs> it's Greg? always a good time it's for always, ghidra. Uh, according to ghidra it's always a good time for ghidra. <laughs> well i wrote all this before you challenged me so i'm just going to read it anyways well ghidra took its name from the villain and sometimes hero from villain God, sometimes hero the, most the conniving villain, villain of the Godzilla movie. It's so funny because I had a, I watched a thing on I want to know more about the monster. I always want to know more about the monsters. <laughs> I want to know more about King Ghidorah. It's so funny because like sometimes he's a bad guy sometimes he's a good guy depending on Godzilla's mood. I'm like does everyone <laughs> all the monsters life just revolve around what Godzilla's up to? What, how he feels that day? Yeah, <laughs> Pretty much. I mean Mothra sometimes is bad and sometimes it's his wife. <laughs> But hey, that's marriage. Yeah, like we have Frankenstein, where like sometimes he's a good guy and sometimes yeah. he's a bad guy. They have a giant radioactive monster. It we depends. have a bunch of dead bodies. There uh, could be something worse than Ghidra out there, and then suddenly Ghidra's a good guy. You think you're looking at the top of the totem pole, but it just goes higher <laughs> and higher. You're like, well, who is it? So everyone on the bottom oh, is no. fighting the thing on top. It's now. King Totem Pole. <laughs> this should be a monster made up of all the faces of the other monsters. So <laughs> villain, sometimes hero Ghidra uh, uh-huh. from Godzilla, King Ghidorah. I would like to take a moment of silence for our fan and friend kevin smith to not scream not that one not that one i just like to give him a minute if he's still listening to go ahead and scream everything he knows about godzilla because i know that as soon as <laughs> yeah. he hears this he'll be it'll take more than and a minute another thing <laughs> and one time he <laughs> crashed into the north pole that's my impression of kevin smith who sounds nothing accurate. like that it's all there though it's his essence certainly <laughs> for all of us regular people out there I, <laughs> I wish i knew more about godzilla lore i don't i watched the like two hour long like here's the all everything you need to know about godzilla and i walked away like knowing less <laughs> that's Kingador. the thing with godzilla the more you learn the less you know the more you watch the stupider you are <laughs> king Ghidorah is a three-headed winged monster and although king Ghidorah is often played as a baddie the people running ghidra saw him as an, an entity resisting oppressive system that sought to eradicate his existence in that i mean sa- you could say that about all of the you really could kaijus, they, they, <laughs> which is lenny bruce's other character <laughs> super jew and kaiju in that same vein ghidra saw themselves asian american youth in the middle of a changing nation as a mighty beast ready to take on a society that oppressed them well why isn't it called Ghidorah instead of ghidra well in a classic greg move the person 
Tracy Okita, I believe, pitched the name Ghidra, misremembering the name of the monster, and they meant Ghidorah. But after they found out, they were just happy it wasn't Ghidorah because at least Ghidra was original. You're telling me it's not, but I fine. swear to God, I've always pronounced it Ghidra, and then only recently have I heard it pronounced Ghidorah. We should watch a bunch of Godzilla movies yeah. and look into it. Let's watch Destroy All Monsters mm-hmm. and the one that came out before Godzilla versus King Kong. King of the Monsters. King Kong, King of the Monsters. <laughs> Godzilla, Godzilla the Monsters. <laughs> Godzilla's. I've only seen like a handful of Godzilla movies, but when other monsters are involved, he always seems like the angry dad, like, just go to bed. Just go to bed. And they're like, no! And they're just like destroying and blowing like fire everywhere and or laser beams. And he's just like, go to bed. Go to bed. And then <laughs> as soon as everyone's like. destroyed, he's like, I'm going to go back into the ocean. And like, slowly. I got to get some rest. <laughs> get some rest. And he's like, slowly. I'm 4,000 years too old for this. <laughs> they said, don't have kids when you're 3,900 years old. And I said, what do they know? And now here I am. As we already said, the Asian American Studies Center at UCLA was brand new and it was a huge accomplishment. Ghidra starts with its core members, I'll name Mike, Denora, Laura, Colin, and Tracy, approached UCLA administration about starting an Asian American community newspaper for the campus to be a collection of voices for this new department. They felt that there was an audience who wanted to read the perspective of Asian American activists. UCLA said no thanks, but Ghidra would not be stopped. The core... (laughs) Five Don't each. we know it? <laughs> That's at least five movies where you can't stop Kidra. The core five each threw in $100 each to produce their own indie publication. Their first issue was published in April of 1969. It featured articles, a statement of intent, illustrations, a comic strip, and poetry. Issue number one was, I think, four pages, and they stated this about Ghidra. Trust is not always pretty not in this world we try hard to keep from hearing about feelings concerns and the problems of fellow human beings when it disturbs us but it makes us feel uneasy and too often it is position and power that determine who is heard this is why ghidra was created <laughs> ghidra is dedicated to truth the honest expression of feeling or it's like when ghidra is running for president yeah <laughs> he's got a little suit on <laughs> <laughs> and in subtitles at the bottom he's using the empire state building as a, a podium he's yeah. got his hands resting on top of it ghidra is committed it's to health care for all <laughs> ghidra will forgive your student loan debt vote king ghidra no more american jets <laughs> we will slash the budget <laughs> on heat guided missiles the no honest, more nuclear research the honest expression of feeling or opinion be it profound or profane innocuous or insulting from wretched or well off that is ghidra ghidra is truth i also i saw some of their covers the covers are really cool oh, yeah, they're, they're they're insane they're yeah. so good yeah yeah they get really good artists a lot of it looked like raymond pettibon drawings but i never found out if it was him or not the guy who drew like a lot of punk stuff they had a page that with the words in capital letters screaming to be read aloud yellow power which i don't feel comfortable <laughs> saying but it was written in ghidra so a I little have to louder say greg a little louder yellow power is a call this is in the paper yellow power is a call for asian americans to end the silence that had condemned us to suffer in this racist society so right off the bat ghidra was bold while on campus ghidra focused itself on asian american movement and helped define the terms of what that meant as well as chronicling the fight for ethnic studies on college campuses and the rise of activism in asian american communities Ghidra at some point moves off the ucla campus and into the offices in the crenshaw district 3108 jefferson boulevard where jefferson meets 11th like it's nothing now except for like an empty strip mall but there used to be like law offices and in the middle of that was Ghidra. when Ghidra moves the content grows. I just, it's just I stuck in my head now. you have to stop you have to try to stop well, every time you, I look up, you're, whenever you're, you're mentioning Ghidra, I imagine Ghidra in the middle of an office building now. with a little like newsboy cap on yeah. typing furiously <laughs> Mothra 
comes in. He's got a press. I need that article. A press pass. Yeah, got a press pass on. He needs that article stat. You said you'd be done by now. Manta is breathing down my throat. I gotta get this published. We go to print in two hours. When Ghidra moves, the content grows with it. And I think when they're when they were at UCLA, the paper was concerned with the movement on a smaller scale, like centered around activism in colleges and smaller communities. But when they move, Ghidra begins discussing the international anti-imperialist movement, linking the Vietnam War to the A-bomb dropping on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They have a regular updated column on dealing with the Vietnam draft. They discuss other movements in Asia. Uh, they continue covering other third world, quote unquote, civil rights groups. Their graphic design, their art, and the poetry sections get really good. As you were saying, the cover art is like amazing. Mm-hmm. They run a series of articles on cooking, making clothes, and fixing toilets. Fixing toilets? Fixing toilets. Like, I, I guess it's like home repair. For, okay. Maybe for college. Uh, I thought it was like a regular. Costumes. And here's the oh. the monthly segment on how to fix your toilet. Yeah, I'd read it. I, I, I need a, it. I have a toilet that leaks at the bottom. I'd, I'd love it. I have a toilet that hasn't flushed in years. <laughs> More of a kind of like a stew now. Um, Keep in mind that they are not making money from this. They tried to sell it for a quarter early on, but usually just ended up giving it away because they felt like people needed to read this. The staff, which had expanded significantly and through its run would bring in about 100 volunteers, put in 50 to 60 hour work weeks <laughs> working on Ghidra while they were at their day jobs and a schedule like that for no money, maybe Ghidra should have become a podcast. <laughs> You like that? Did they consider Patreon? <laughs> you get $5 a month from your friends and family. Um, <laughs> Mostly family. Gidra discussed things like the Little Tokyo redevelopment and how older Japanese residents were being pushed out of the area for big businesses and buildings to move in. And reading that, I'm like, there are no homes in Little Tokyo, are there? Mm, now, there's no. like apartment complexes yeah, where people live. But it's not like a home. I mean, there's not homes downtown, really. I guess not. Well, there was Bunker Hill. I'm wondering yeah, if at any, some point there, there were. Been, there haven't been homes downtown in like 70 years. Very but. true. But that, like, uh, yeah, I guess I'm stuck on the idea of like Bunker Hill, but that's pretty early. I don't know. Like, I kind of want to know more about what Little Tokyo looked like before big businesses moved in. Well, we in. talked about that in the Central Avenue one about, when it became Bronzeville. And yeah. A little bit about that. A little bit about that. I just wanted to know more about it. Um, well, too bad. <laughs> well, what is this? A podcast about history? When you look into it already? Geetra <laughs> ran a series about what was unfolding there kind of later in their years. Uh, they ran a story about young people dealing with their cultural identity, generational gaps. Still, though, most impressingly about Geetra was how they dealt with talking about the Japanese incarceration during World War II, mainly that they were even talking about it. <laughs> a majority of Geetra staff were Japanese Americans or of Japanese descent, and many had personal stories to tell about that traumatic experience at a time when Americans were hoping it would just slip away with time. Many older Japanese people shied away from talking about it, and while Americans saw Japanese Japanese and Japanese Americans and Asian Americans as the model minority, which is incredibly hurtful and dumb. Yeah. Just like, oh, they're, they be like they took, yeah, be like them. <laughs> there weren't a lot of voices or venues to talk about what happened to Japanese people in the 40s, but there was Ghidra, a prime venue to tell history from a different perspective. Ghidra was a blend of the past, the present, and the future of Asian American concerns. But Ghidra was not long for this world. You can't say things like this to me and not expect me to picture every Godzilla movie. It goes black and white and it zooms in on his face. But Ghidra was not long for this world. It it suddenly turns into like a Kurosawa movie. But it's Ghidra. For their fifth anniversary issue in 1974, they announced that they would take a hiatus. I love this in quotes. At least three months. Probably longer possibly forever <laughs> uh, there were many reasons why they, there was no money making in this whole thing fear of volunteers were coming in and it was listed one of the reasons was declining morale I don't know more about that <laughs> I, I guess because the 70s hit and you learned that the 60s didn't work and you're like mm, we should probably just do something else because it turns out the cops <laughs> in the military and the American government don't care that we're protesting yeah. everything let's go listen to Led Zeppelin let's go listen to Led Zeppelin get really high and then get surprised when the Manson family thing happens <laughs> there, that's it, yeah, it already happened it already happened but we're so high it comes to us we didn't hear about it till 1974 we heard 
but it didn't sink in. I didn't really get what that meant. (laughs) It's so funny. My like 60s montage idea is so, but like my 70s montage is just like (laughs) clips from Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, I was thinking it's leather face with a chainsaw at the end. That's the whole montage. It's the the opening of that corpse on a stick. And they're just like, I don't know. So its press run and completion was 4,000 and it had 900 to 1,300 subscribers by the end. Many of its staffers went on to become active in the anti-eviction struggles in the mid to late 70s as part of the Little Tokyo Anti-Eviction Task Force and Little Tokyo's People's Rights Organization. So they like, even when the publication was done, they continued their activism. It wasn't just Mm -hmm. dead with the publication of a certain name. Which one? (laughs) And what's the name of the publication? 20 years later, in 1989, a group of the original Ghidra members and New Blood put out a 20th anniversary issue and 10 years after that, 1999, another five issues of Ghidra were released by another group. Thanks to Mike Morassi, all the issues were saved, digitized, and are now online for free at densho.org d-e-n-s-h-o dot org and on its 45th anniversary from its original last run issue but that's 2019 a new issue of Ghidra was released looking back on its publication's history and the 50 years of Asian American activism Ghidra is a perfect manifestation of cultural change and raw new exciting activism it's a thing born out of the civil rights zeitgeist which is I didn't realize when I was typing it it would be really hard to say <laughs> the, Asian- the civil rights zeitgeist <laughs> nailed it got it the first time out and Asian Americans today who feel like the whole world is discriminating them can flip through Ghidra and see the horrifying facts that this isn't new which is awful but mm-hmm. maybe a beacon of hope that you aren't alone this is other generations going through their own stuff got through by actively making themselves heard and finding community so hopefully Ghidra could be there for somebody it almost feels like Ghidra should be like a golem type of character (laughs) protecting Asian Americans (laughs) but then Ghidra gets out of control yeah then it gets to his head then he likes it (laughs) it's one of those things of like I I wish I had known more that was a thing that I was hearing about for years that there was this Uh, Asian American hey I would have read it it was great yeah Yeah. (laughs) I would have read it just for the covers there's so few sort of local independent things like that now yeah. like i don't even know if la weekly exists anymore <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure <laughs> we but. are the champion of that battle but <laughs> if it were sitting at some coffee shop or something i'd yeah. pick one up like, there should be a more comprehensive because a lot of it's a digitized online which is great yeah. for researchers but I'd, I'd i don't like reading newspapers and magazines online no no it's like a carpool lane to a headache the fastest way <laughs> all right so now for our last portion here it's another i have another person this is not a monster from a godzilla movie although maybe she would have liked that (laughs) this is one like i said we gave her about a paragraph before as part of a bigger episode but her whole story is uh worth telling and i know that she has a huge story especially in la because she's yeah hometown hero yet again yet again just like (laughs) idra So, anime Wong, but anime also become a big Hollywood star. <laughs> this is the story of a lady who we covered, like I said, only in passing as part of the larger Chinatown episode, but it's time to revisit and give her her full due, Anna May Wong, which I guess I pronounce her name too fast because both you and Melissa were like, she's not anime. Yeah, anime. Anime Wong. <laughs> I'm not going to enunciate an <laughs> A to an M sound. Anime Wong. Were, were we talking about the lamb sandwich story? <laughs> In regards to this, or was that a I'm different not, reason I'm that was tr- brought up? Let's quickly tell that story. <laughs> when I tell people, I realize it's a not story. Like, it's not climactic. It's barely funny, except it's for not me, cl- you, and Edric. <laughs> it's not climactic because I was so enunciatory about this. Because we went to the Bear Pit Barbecue. Yeah. I don't eat pork, yeah. so I wanted to get a lamb sandwich. But I didn't want them to think I'm ordering a ham sandwich. <laughs> so when the lady came up to me and said, what do you want? I said, I'd like a lamb sandwich. <laughs> sandwich <laughs> you said it like every time you come they get it wrong you had the tone of a man who was like fed up give me a lamb 
sandwich. I thought you were mad at her. A lamb, ba ba, not oink oink. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why I brought that up to you the other day. Yeah, you brought it up. I had brought it up to Ada not too long ago too. So it was so funny that both of us had found a way to bring up a nothing story. But you're doing the same thing where you're like anime, anime Wong. <laughs> I'm still gonna sound like I'm saying it anime, but I'm saying Anna May. So she was born January third, nineteen oh five, in our very own Chinatown, Los Angeles. Yes. As her name originally was Wong Liu Song, uh-huh. which is interesting because this is two people with the name Liu in their name. Yeah. So anyway, interesting to me. I that's funny. <laughs> so her name meant frosted yellow willows in oh, Chinese. Beautiful. Her family had been in the country for a while by the time she was born and had they had had the full Chinese American experience <laughs> of the eighteen hundreds, <laughs> which is not an experience I've drive downtown and pay fifty dollars for. <laughs> not recommended. No. Not fun for many. Her grandpa came to the country in the eighteen fifties, as many Chinese people did for the gold rush. Okay. He had a son. He was living in Sacramento. So he had a son, but shortly after the son was born, a woman fell down a well and the dad tried to save her and he ended up dying trying to save this woman from a oh well, God. which is crazy. <laughs> no good deed goes Just, without falling into a well. <laughs> so now the son, who's anime's dad, uh-huh. and his mom, they moved back to China where the son grew up and he married a woman who had also been born in California, but had moved back to China. And then they themselves had a son. So okay. anime's dad then decided that he wanted to give America another try. So he went back to California alone with the intention of making some money and then sending for his wife and Uh son. Problem was the U.S. extended the restrictions on the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm. And now wives were not allowed into the United States from China. So he had to just forget about his wife in China and pretend like they were never married, even though they he had a son and a wife. Wild. That's insane that the U.S. government just told him like your your wife is gone now. You're single now. Yeah, the true American dad experience. <laughs> His mom then arranged for a new marriage form to another Chinese woman who was born in San Francisco, and this woman was Anna Mae Wong's mom. Okay. So these are her parents. Right. The two then moved to Los Angeles, where they opened, once again, a laundromat on mm-hmm. Figueroa, and they lived in an apartment above it. Her parents had eight kids, but one of them died young, and one of these kids was Lu Song, who was born somewhere on Flower Street downtown. As a kid, she, of course, helped out in the laundromat. I don't know if she was ironing socks but i don't know if she got punished like that but and she would deliver laundry and she also went to the california street elementary school and took chinese lessons after class the problem was this was early 1900s los angeles and she was chinese so she went by her english name anna may Mm -hmm. when she was at school but that didn't stop the white kids from pushing her slapping her and the schoolyard experience wouldn't be complete without racist name calling right. so she was just picked on constantly I would say that's more than being picked on but yeah no that's, that's <laughs> she was hate crime abuse yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was traumatized in a very cruel way uh, on a daily basis so it got to be too much for her so her parents transferred her to the China Mission School in Chinatown where all the other kids were Chinese and she had a much better time but her true interest was not found in the classroom unless it was a rainy day and it was time to watch the sandlot again no what she really loved was movies don't we all anime don't we all love anime (laughs) she loved movies she would ditch school and take her lunch money and the tips she got delivering laundry and sneak into theaters and watch movies while she was supposed to be in class (laughs) then she'd roam around town trying to find film crews shooting something outside and she'd just stand there and watch them for hours trying to get as close to the action as she could which should be the experience if you see someone shooting 
watching a movie, you should be like, oh, cool. I want to see how it's done. It should be like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was what, 1915, maybe. This yeah. was like the fourth movie film. This, yeah. It literally all been, some cups. Yeah. She hadn't been stuck in traffic uh, for the 4,000th time because of a movie being filmed. But yeah, she she just loved watching it. Yeah. She was around film crews so often. I remember we talked about this yeah. in the episode. She was around them so often that people started recognizing her and would call her CCC for Curious Chinese Child. <laughs> I don't know why that stuck in my head for like the past six years since we you did. like wordplay so much. It's just so alliterative, Greg. <laughs> How could I forget such alliteration? But this is also weird that like at the same time, probably Sister Corito was like wandering around watching movies being filmed and she's standing next to Anime Wong and Tex Avery or whoever we talked about. Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones. The three of us should collaborate <laughs> on a project together. So then she would go home and she would reenact scenes that she saw in front of a mirror to get the facial oh, wow. expressions right. And by age nine... She was that close to be seeing like actors perform because usually... Well, she was also... First of all, yeah, but she was also watching well, movies. Watching movies, watching movies, watching movies. So she could... The revelation to me was like, oh yeah, she wouldn't be saying lines. If you're reenacting a scene from a silent movie, you're just going like... <laughs> so her mom's pounding on the bathroom door what are you doing in there it's silent <laughs> keep it up in there yeah you're not having well, for the mirror are you you're not mugging are you <laughs> so at age nine she had already decided that she wanted to become an actress at age nine she even decided at age 11 what her stage name would be it would be the combination of both her english and her chinese names anna may Wong. Perfect. The lamb sandwich <laughs> of people. But this is not something a 9, 10, or 11-year-old Chinese-American girl admits to her parents in 1915. Yeah. First off, what parents in any year would want their kids to become an actor. Second, at the time, the idea of an Asian actor that had more than a role in a movie that was just someone pushing a cart in the background was almost unheard of. Yeah. Then third, she was 11 years old. <laughs> she, third, she was most important. Yeah, third, she was in third grade. <laughs> Why would her parents let her do that? So yeah. as it was, she started trying to get into acting and did the only relatable thing to do in that situation and never told her parents. Mm -hmm. Incredibly relatable. It's the only way to do it. So, <laughs> oh, you told your parents early on? Yeah, that's a big mistake. Huh? Ooh, you'll never make it. Ooh, yeah. That's but, not in the David Letterman book. That's not in the Steve yeah, Martin that, book. That's not a good hook for your resume. <laughs> she was smart about this, Anna Mae Wong. Uh -huh. She was 11 years old and she knew that she was young. So she gave herself 10 years and if she wasn't a successful actor within 10 years, she was going to quit and it wouldn't be that bad because she would only be 21 years old and she could still go and do that anything else. and that's the benefit of knowing really young what you want to do yeah she had a, a serious self-awareness luckily for her it didn't take 10 years must be nice um <laughs> i heard a couple stories that either it was because she was hanging around movie sets so much or her cousin or her uncle became, like assistant gaffer like <laughs> for no experience like uh, steven spielberg she just snuck on and started working <laughs> who's this curious baseball hat wearing child that's steven spielberg's nickname it was either her cousin or and her uncle, it was a guy named James Wang who had played the Chinese character in several Westerns. Uh -huh. Whoever he was and whatever the situation exactly was, she was made aware that a movie was putting out a casting call for 300 Chinese women and girls to be extras and she was chosen as one oh, of them. Cool. This was her first time on screen. It was 1919's The Red Lantern, which had Reginald Denny in it. <gasps> Did it really? Yeah. <laughs> the actor with the strangest name. <laughs> with the most unfortunate name. <laughs> so she was 14 years old and carried a lantern in the background. Was it the titular 
Red Lantern? Who knows? Color wasn't invented yet in movies. It's a darker gray. How come that lantern is so toned? (laughs) She did this sort of background work for two years, two full years without telling her parents, lightweight. So (laughs) So when she was 16, her dad got her a job as a secretary in some office thinking like, you know, my daughter needs a job. Yeah. She got fired after a week, but the story I heard that same day she got fired, she was dreading coming home to tell her dad that like, I lost the job you got me. That same day, a letter arrived for her before she got home offering her a role in the movie Bits of Life and her dad read it and suddenly she had a lot of splaining to do. (laughs) This is always, lying to your parents always blown up by someone who's trying to help you out. (laughs) It's always them. Luckily though, her parents finding out she was doing this overshadowed that she just got fired from her job. Yeah. Even you're going to have to quit your job. Okay. About that. You're still going to be a secretary. Yeah. Um, Even though her parents saw becoming an actress on par with becoming a sex worker, they agreed to allow her to keep acting, which was great because this was going to be her first actual screen credit in Bits of Life. And that must have been seen past it being a bad career to the point where like, that's a a great opportunity. Well, listen to what the opportunity was. This was 1921 and this was when she dropped out of Los Angeles High School to pursue acting full time. This movie was a big deal because her role was she was the abused wife of the main character who was played by Lon Chaney. The, <laughs> she was in a Lon Chaney She was in a Lon, the man of a thousand faces. Unfortunately, this time it was a Chinese face and he was regrettably <laughs> in yellow face, which is a term I don't like using because yellow is a weird way to describe yeah. non-Simpsons people <laughs> skin color. Yeah. But for some reason, it's the accepted terminology. But let the record show, I don't like saying I didn't like saying yellow it. face. Yeah, it's awful. Also, unlike blackface, which, okay, I get it. They yeah. put black paint on their face. Mm-hmm. With yellow face, they never actually painted anybody's skin yellow. Yeah. It just meant they would use tape or spirit gum to pull their eyes up and back, which is yeah. just as gross. But yeah, this, she was in a Lon Chaney movie. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, and I think it's also one of those Lon Chaney movies where like there's no footage remaining. Like, I think, oh, there's, one a, of those. I think okay. there's some pictures of it yeah. maybe. So this was her first real movie role, but the conditions her dad agreed with her to let her act in it was that she always had to have an adult escort on set with her, who was usually him. <laughs> and when she wasn't on camera, he would keep her locked in a room on set so nobody would go near her. Oh my god. Hooray for Hollywood! He <laughs> sounds like you're describing Brooke Shields too. And also, a third thing is I get as many autographs as I want. No questions asked. And also, and, uh, if I go eat from the... Yeah, I'll be at craft services <laughs> while you're locked in the room. Also, if you could introduce me to Gloria Swanson, that's in our contract, so I'll let you go ahead and work that out. So this led to her getting her very first lead role just one year later at age 17 in The Toll of the sea in 1922 this was a huge deal for her but also a huge deal for movie history because this movie seems to have been the first technicolor feature length movie ever made and also the first one to not require a special projector to screen it whoa really she she was the lead character in this but now anime wong she's something of a starlet she's 17 years old and she's a star now and her dad still kept her locked in a (laughs) locked in a broom closet on the set (laughs) Uh, reporters started hanging around her family's laundromat hoping to see her get a picture or something one fan in particular of her was husband of the guardian angel of L.A. Meekly, Douglas Fairbanks. Mm. Uh, so uh, let's just do the math there. That's Mary Pickford's husband. <laughs> so Douglas Fairbanks, he loved the toll of the sea so much that he cast her in the next movie he was doing, The Thief of Baghdad in oh, 1924. Yeah. And this was massive for her. It was like being cast in The Avengers. Like yeah. that's how big of a deal it you would be. You know how big of a deal it is? I've heard of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's a hundred years old and I know what it is. <laughs> I know exactly what it is. <laughs> so it wasn't a big role, but it was a mega Hollywood production 
production yeah. and she got huge exposure from being in it. Almost as importantly here, though, was that she was hugely exposed in the movie. Her outfit was risque to the extreme for 1924. The best description I have is think Leia in Return of the Jedi. Okay. Like that's basically how she was dressed. Okay. And even though her acting was also as good as it could be for such a small role, it made a big splash with the public. I'm like, sure. Yeah, <laughs> they had never seen skin before. Her parents, not so much. They did not like this. They had to yeah. give their permission to let her wear that in the movie, but they were very embarrassed by it and kind of alienated her from some of her siblings. This was it though for Anna Mae Wong. She had broken through and now she was a bona fide movie star. Yeah. More importantly, she was the first bona fide Asian American movie star, Anna Mae Wong. She was put in many movies. Sometimes since she was not white, they'd make her play whatever non-white characters that were in the movie, be it Latina or Native uh, American. She yeah. was Tiger Lily in Peter Pan in 1924. <laughs> We're talking about a different Peter Pan. What Peter Pan are you thinking of? Hook? The Disney one. <laughs> yeah, she was in Disney's Peter Pan. Yeah, I was like, wait. They animated like, She did her. the voice for Tiger Lily, who she doesn't She finally talk? became animated. <laughs> well, yeah, she all... Hey, she, guess what? 1924, she also didn't talk. It's a silent movie. She was always getting standout reviews, even when the movie itself was bad. Her fans called her the Yellow Wonder. White audiences loved her because she was different and exotic. Asian American audiences loved her because she was an Asian presence on screen. So yeah. she, everybody was into her. Douglas Fairbanks maybe a little too much. <laughs> she drilled the first rivet into the foundations of the Chinese theater in a big special ceremony. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, who else were they? That's very true. Who else? Uh, we're going to get Mickey Rooney to do it. <laughs> Can we get Lon Chaney to do that one face again? <laughs> she dressed as a flapper. Yeah. Her bangs were iconic. Mm -hmm. She knew slang. She could do the Charleston, which right there, that's a movie star to me. <laughs> so she was hip, which yeah. is not a word people use to describe me when I tell them I can also do the Charleston. <laughs> well, listen to my slang. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> she was also a model. She would sometimes model fur in ads that were in the paper and her parents seemed to have come around on all this and were now proud of her for everything she was doing. That reminds me of a uh, Conan talks about getting his first job mm -hmm. and how disappointed his parents were in him pursuing comedy until he brought the first paycheck. Yeah, home. They're like, right. okay, you're fine. <laughs> so one time her dad was so proud that he clipped one of her fur ads out of the newspaper and sent it to his son, anime's half brother, yeah. stepbrother, whatever you call it. Half brother, I think. Back in China and he replied, song is indeed very beautiful but please send me the dollar watch printed on the other side <laughs> such a half brother We've, response yeah. that's so we love the clipping so much we framed it but it's the back side of it <laughs> yeah yeah she looks really good but it's 35 cents for a can of beans what america really is great too bad we weren't allowed to come <laughs> and during all this she would still keep the books at her parents laundry like she was still working at oh, her wow. parents laundry place. imagine that like one of the biggest movie stars and she still like yeah. has to do a shit yeah. at the laundry mat. <laughs> on friday night she puts on a visor and she's like crunching <laughs> the numbers in her dad's back room but of course it wasn't all roses for old frosted yellow willows mm -hmm. she was a movie star yes but she was also a chinese woman working in a white man's industry and this was one of the many eras of yellow peril Mm -hmm. the term that history has given to the situation she faced and still Asian <laughs> actors are still facing today yeah. what they call this is the bamboo ceiling in her time the two roles an Asian woman could play would either be the butterfly mm -hmm. who was submissive and subservient so that you were either the butterfly or you were the dragon lady who was the seductive villain Okay. and the role she was offered would not go any higher than those before she hit the bamboo ceiling so that's all she could play that's so like it's a weird way to connect it but like like in film Nara you're either like the girl who's like fighting someone with her wrist or you're the femme fatale but there's little room for yeah it's yeah. hard enough to write things do you think I'm <laughs> going to take the time to flesh out the female characters so we're up William Faulkner to write another thing no you're doing as is <laughs> so in Anna Mae's case because she was so beautiful and had such a striking figure she was also highly sexualized in 
everything, yeah. which was par for the course of America's obsession with objectifying Asian women as these exotic beings for mm-hmm. sexual conquest. But there was this ridiculous contradiction here because certain states in the country at the time had laws forbidding interracial couples. So to avoid controversy with those laws and to make sure their movies could be shown in as many states as possible, the movie studios just self-censored themselves and chose not to portray interracial couples on screen. Because that was part of the Hayes Code too, I think, was there no interracial couples allowed on, yeah. in any it, film. It, it's weird because like you could have two white people pretending to be Asian kiss each other, but you couldn't have a white man pretending to be Asian kiss an Asian, Asian woman. woman. Yeah. It's almost like it's really racist. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, what, I'm it, that's what I was, looking that's what for. I was yeah. trying to put my finger on it. <laughs> and this is also why they wouldn't put anime in many lead roles, because by the laws of early Hollywood storytelling, the leading woman would have to kiss the leading man at some yeah. point. Every and, story literally had a man kiss a woman in it. Yeah, it had to be. The hero, that's how you know the hero is good, is they kissed a woman. Whether she wanted it or not. <laughs> and since there were only white leading men, they couldn't have an Asian yeah. leading woman. And no way could they have an Asian leading man, because that would be crazy. <laughs> what kind of story is that? What, 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 how am I going to write that? Yeah. So to sum up, whenever she was on screen during this time she was typically some evil sex kitten in a pretty minor role and would usually be killed before the movie ended because she was evil and to top it all off she was getting paid significantly less than her white co-stars but luckily for all of us she was not content with this she hated that the roles she was offered were always villains she said and so cruel a villain murderous treacherous a snake in the grass how should we be with a civilization that's so many times older than that of the west we have our own virtues we have our rigid code of behavior of honor why do they never show the on screen why should we always scheme rob and kill so fed up with the racist roles hollywood is providing to asian actors she decided to open up her own production company anime wong productions in march 1924 and her plan was to make movies about chinese legends and chinese people with Mm -hmm. chinese people working on them and acting in them how incredibly progressive that would have been exactly but of course her partner was a guy named forrest b Crichton, but forrest b a crook because he just stole her money and the whole thing crumbled and it never they she never got to make anything shocking for the guy named after the founder of the kkk (laughs) yeah that would have been imagine like the lincoln picture company with with black actors like that would have been imagine what the world could have been like Mm -hmm. and all it took was one crook stealing her money (laughs) to undo everything so she was stuck back trying to cope with the structural racism in place in Hollywood she did what she could she spoke out against Hollywood racism in interviews and she stood up for herself when she could she tried to work with the makeup and costume people to make sure that she looked more authentic on screen part of the reason she had adopted that flapper style though is because she wanted to show the public that she wasn't different than anybody else she was just another independent American woman but just like Hattie McDaniel and Step and Fetch It it was this or nothing Mm. like she tried and she could have put her foot down and said no but then guess what you're not going to be paid yeah like she needed to make money and like what you can't falter for playing the roles that she was playing I fault the system I don't fault the actors having to try to push through all that don't hate the player hate uh, famous players Lasky (laughs) she even had to teach Myrna Loy how to use chopsticks on the set of The Crimson City in 1928 because Myrna Loy was playing the lead Asian role while Anna May, professional Asian movie star and chopstick professional user. Professional Asian woman. Asian woman at large. <laughs> she was stuck as yet another side character. God, that's awful. So then there was a photo story in Photoplay magazine of Loretta Young in full-on yellow face saying, you didn't even need to cast Anna May Wong because Loretta Young could play an Asian person better. So there was like this I'm weird... I'm going to get a 
nosebleed rolling my eyes so hard. <laughs> this is like this weird smear campaign. I, yeah. like, I don't know what they were trying to prove. And on top of all of this, the FBI had a file on her because they kept tabs on Asian people and she was the most prominent Asian person in the country. The, I bet that was the first one on the list. Like, okay, let's name all the Asian people. Yeah. Okay, Anime Wong. Anime Wong. And, uh, uh, oh, boy. Uh... Okay. <laughs> We're not racist, are we? We're the good guys, right? So in 1928, she said, forget all this. I don't need to deal with any of this. And she moved to Europe where they were a little more accepting of someone yeah. like her. A little. 3% to 5%. Yeah. <laughs> she was welcomed in the European movie industry because she was such a big star in America. Yeah. And she was able to get juicier leading roles. But most of the time, they were still falling into those same stereotypes. She was making movies in London, Berlin, Paris. She was in Germany's first talkie ever. Wow. Wow, really? Anime Wong. And to be in these movies, this little girl from Chinatown was in Germany's first talking picture. And to be in these movies, she also had to learn the languages. So she became at least proficient in French, German, and Italian on top of English and either Mandarin or Cantonese. For one movie called Flame of Love, she made three full versions of it, one entirely in English, one entirely in French, and one entirely in German. I think all the other actors around her were like, all right, bring in the French crew. Yeah, yeah. But she She was was in it speaking those languages for the whole movie. She also became friends with the European actors like Marlena Dietrich, who she is rumored to have been romantically involved with. Interesting. Very interesting. Good for both of them. Well done. Well done, both of you. <laughs> what a uh, perfect 10 out of 10 Home run for both of you. <laughs> she was also rumored to have been romantically involved with Dracula director Todd Browning when she was 17, to oh, which I say, geez. bleh. <laughs> That's exactly like Todd Browning. I think I know about Todd Browning, <laughs> uh, Boy Raised in the Circus. That sounds like something yeah. you would do. Can you read the first part of the sentence and I'll tell you where to stop. Uh, she was also rumored to have been romantically involved with Dracula stop. director. <laughs> Go back a word? Okay. There's rumor of this affair she had with this uh, sort of king of the night, <laughs> pr- this prince of darkness. Who He's a, a count, so he's certainly royalty from a made-up country. <laughs> I hear he did move to England, though. There's also a picture of her in 1929, Anime Wong, with Marlena Dietrich yeah. and another German actress who would go on to become a director, Lenny Riefenstahl, director of Triumph of the Will, hmm. famous Nazi propaganda movie and friend of Hitler, to hmm. which I say, bleh. <laughs> the, imagine how incriminate, like, with um. your... Oh, that's the poster of you that's hanging in Romanovs. And it's like weirdly folded at the end. Like, whose arm is that? <laughs> is that an SS yeah, what's cufflinks? That, what's that skull ring? <laughs> so she also did a bunch of stage shows as well around Europe. She started an opera in Germany, entirely in German. Wow. And she did one play called A Circle of Chalk that was written specifically for her, where her co-star was a young nobody named Sir Lawrence Olivier. Jesus he was born Christ. with the Sir. Um, I love when our stories become like... Forrest uh, Gump. Forrest Gump. Or like Hollywood 101. Yeah. <laughs> one problem people did have with her on stage was her Los Angeles accent. Uh, one quote like about... A valley girl? That's what it kind of sounds like. One quote about her on stage in Britain was, they said, she has the world's most beautiful figure and a face like a Ming princess. And when she opens her mouth, out comes Los Angeles Chinatown Sing Sing Girl. And every syllable is a fresh shock. <laughs> like, I don't know what she sound Like, I don't know what the LA Chinatown accent I'm was. <laughs> it, it's pretty offensive. I can't voice it like, oh my God. I don't know what people in 1920s... Yeah, I'm so curious now. Yeah. She took vocal coaching, though, to crush out her L.A. accent. Yeah. But you can't crush the girl out of L.A. because in May 1931, Paramount contracted her, promising her leading roles in a three-picture deal. Wow. She replaced her L.A. accent with a Boston accent? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only thing powerful enough. Pack the car. Pack the car. Car pack. Oh, my God. Pack the car. <laughs> so, Paramount Pictures, three-picture deal, leading roles, and to sweeten the pot, they also promised... She she wouldn't get a pay increase. 
but the best deal you've ever heard of. Yeah. We lost all the stuff you wanted, but we kept all the bad things. <laughs> but she wanted to give Hollywood another shot. And also her mom got hit and killed by a car in oh front of their house. God. So she figured maybe it's time to come home. And wouldn't you believe it? This time Hollywood learned its lesson and gave her everything she deserved. Just kidding. Uh, they still took advantage of her. She played the daughter of Fu Manchu in okay. Daughter of the Dragon, which was her first American talkie. And she was top billed in the movie. And Warner Oland, who was the guy who played Fu Manchu and was barely in this movie, he got paid $12,000 while Anime Wong got $6,000. Top billed. So. She is the daughter of the dragon and she got $6,000. <laughs> she was in Shanghai Express uh, with her old pal, Marlena Dietrich. And while Dietrich was very much the star of the movie, Marlena Dietrich got $78,160. $66 while Anime Wong got $6,000. And a pat on the back. Well, she got a flat rate? Yeah, and a rock. That's crazy. That's absurd. It I hate is. That. Like, Anime Wong didn't have the biggest part in the movie, but it's Anime Wong. Yeah, it's a person to be billed. Yeah, exactly. Like, if, if Warner Oland can be paid $12,000 to die as Fu Manchu in the first five minutes, like, you can pay for the name recognition of Anime yeah. Wong. Plus, Anime Wong got better reviews than Dietrich, so yeah. Dietrich complained years later that Wong upstaged her. My old girlfriend, I mean, uh, <laughs> friend, friend, uh, upstaged <laughs> Uh, did you hear she's dating Dracula? <laughs> I'm straight as an arrow. I'm straight as a googie roof. In, <laughs> uh, in her personal life as well, it was another Hattie McDaniel situation where she's one of the biggest names in Hollywood, and yet she wasn't allowed to live in most parts around town. Right. But at the same time, like I said, she was one of the biggest names in Hollywood and an icon. The Mayfair Mannequin Society of New York named her the world's best dressed woman. Look Magazine named her the world's most beautiful Chinese girl. Okay. Uh, weird side note, in 1937, both she and David Selznick got letters in the mail from some lunatic. Selznick said that he had to make a biblical movie starring anime Wong and her said that if she didn't send him $20,000 he'd dismember her. Oh, those are very different letters. I thought the other one was like, you better star in this movie. Also with contradictory, That's I'm going to so dismember funny. you and then you better star in this movie. <laughs> the movie never got made. The guy no. never got caught and anime Wong was never dismembered. So the public loved her aside from Mr. Dismemberment and Hollywood also loved her but it was illegal for her to live in Beverly Hills and she just could not break through that bamboo ceiling in her movie role. So it was it was really confusing and yeah. can mess with your head, which it did. Anime Wong started struggling with depression and yeah. she also became an alcoholic. So she was not Fair. coping with it very well. We love you in theory. Yeah, we love you as an actor. <laughs> as an image. Yeah, we love you when you're in the movie theater and then we leave you and you don't live on my blog. And you're like, do you validate? And we're like, oh boy, this is became really real right now and i'm i'm kind of not feeling you anymore what a crazy thing of people like no i don't want hattie mcdaniel and anime wong world-renowned movie stars living on my street what would that mean about my street what will it do for the property value make it go up because <laughs> two giant movie stars live on my street but the biggest insult came when she f oh, this, this is crazy it came when she found out they were making a movie version of the good earth by pearl yes. s buck in 19 we talked about that in the chinatown episode did we yeah the book had been a huge hit when it came out in 1931 and is now a classic about a Chinese farmer in early 1900s China. It's a story entirely about Chinese people. So Anime Wong correctly, might I add, figured that the farmer's wife, Olan, was the role she was born to play. Right. The producers felt differently. One guy said she wasn't beautiful enough and somebody said she was too Chinese to play Chinese. I don't know what that <sighs> means. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so the role went to Louise Rayner, who was put in Yellowface and she won an Oscar for that role. The movie, all about Chinese people, ended up starring two white people. As a consolation, the producers offered her the role of Lotus, which was the one evil character in the story.
story and she said you're asking me <laughs> with Chinese blood to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture featuring an all American cast portraying Chinese actors <laughs> and to which they said yeah why are you using that tone uh, so she refused and it's once it's not all American cast that guy's German Go ahead. Uh, so she refused and once again she quit Hollywood for the second time her younger sister actually did get a small role in the movie and just three years later hanged herself in the family garage uh, another weird side note wow so now Anna May is done with Hollywood again and decides to reconnect with her roots and go on a grand tour of China. I'm going to go to the homeland. I'm going to see what it's like. She traveled all around seeing sites, buying clothes that she could use in movies and on stage. And she also documented everything she did as a travel log that she was mailing back to the New York Herald Tribune and the LA Times to publish like Anime Wong travels in China, like Charles Lummis. But what she found in China was kind of disturbing. It turns out the press and overall population in China hated Anime Wong. Oh, geez. They called her the female traitor to China, partly because she was a Chinese woman and being a sexual character like she was in most movies was a big no-no for Chinese women in China, but also partly because her rules were not exactly flattering to Chinese people. So she was sort of like like how people saw Step and Fetch It, like you are a traitor to our kind. So now she was being rejected by certain parts of America for being too Chinese and also certain parts of China for being too American. So this was definitely not good for her depression and her alcohol um, after China, she spent about three years back in Europe doing movies and theater, and then World War the Second one hit, and show business had to be melted down into bullets. <laughs> Anime Wong had always been involved in fighting for Chinese rights. As far back as 1931, she wrote a whole criticism of Japan's invasion of Manchuria. But when the war hit, and with all she was going through in her struggle within herself, she decided to devote all of her time to Chinese and Asian causes. She raised money for Chinese refugees from Japan. She auctioned off her movie costumes and gave the money to different different. Chinese charities. She wrote a cookbook, gave the proceeds from that as well to charity. She did fundraisers in Australia. She toured with the USO. She worked for the United China Relief Fund. She worked with groups in Chinatown here in Los Angeles to repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act. And this was much more fulfilling to her than playing a conniving sex worker who's trying to kill white people in a movie. Yeah, the owner and operator of an opium den. Exactly. as appealing as actually... (laughs) You want to be a drug dealer or try to get the Chinese (laughs) Exclusion Act repealed? We can chain you to the wall like a decoration. We won't pay you. Yeah. If that's what you're worried about. If you're worried about paperwork, don't worry, we're not going to pay you. And plus, the 1940s wasn't exactly a time for sympathetic portrayals of Asian people of any kind in movies. So in 1942, she just decided to retire from acting altogether. She was 35 years old. Good for her. Good for her, which also, boy, retire. Get away from him. Leave him. Get away. Leave him, Mr. Hollywood. (laughs) And that was just her whole life for seven years when she decided she wanted to. For seven years, she was just like fundraising, activism stuff and just like living. But then seven years later, she decided she wanted to give acting another try. What year was it? 1949, she wanted to get back into acting. Not much really came out of this career revival. Mm -hmm. Not much had really changed in Hollywood. Also, she now flat out refused to do the sort of things she was usually asked to do. She would not play a racist role anymore. So she was mostly in TV shows and low budget B stuff where she actually could find a few roles that were well-written, non-stereotypical Asian characters. The biggest part of this phase of her career though was in 1950, she became the star of the Gallery of Madame Liu Song, where she played an art gallery owner slash detective. <gasps> I love that. This was a TV show, which sounds great. It was on yeah. the Dumont Network, which was an early rival to NBC and CBS, and it only had one season, but was, this was the first American TV show to have a lead actor who was Asian American. I love that. 
and it was anime wong that sounds great yeah and i don't even know if there's because like what's left from the dumont network like i don't think there's any dvd sets of this show but in 1961 it looked like a career revival actually was coming they were planning to make a movie out of the broadway musical flower drum song Uh it was a big hit musical this was going to be a huge movie this was it was a story mostly about asian americans and it was going to be played mostly by asian americans and once again anime wong felt she was perfect for the role of the mom and this time producers actually agreed and cast her in the role Uh this maybe could be the first step towards a new phase of her career where she could actually play fully fleshed out asian characters on screen and then she died of a heart attack at her house in santa monica (sighs) before the filming could start she was 56 years old she had been in over 50 movies she had a star on the walk of fame and years later she got that statue at the end of hollywood boulevard Mm -hmm. with a few other women trailblazers it's also said that the song these foolish things was written about her in 1935 which could be true because uh, she was friends with the guy who wrote it but as one last insult her obituary in time magazine said that she had died a thousand deaths as the screen's foremost oriental villainess so you never could shake that stereotype and by dying a thousand deaths they meant because she was always the villain she always died in the end but in reality she did die a thousand deaths every time she had to play one of those roles because it killed her a little bit inside she didn't want to do that so here's to remembering anime wong hollywood didn't know what they had when they had her but her half brother would still prefer that dollar watch on the other (laughs) side of the picture a perfect metaphor for her (laughs) what an absolutely tragic story that it is tragic like she she wasn't old she wasn't yeah. that old and she was cast in the role she was gonna be in a juicy role she yeah. probably could have done other stuff but hollywood's trying to play catch-up now i mean like look how progressive we right. are like you had so many chances and you've buried so many people that's why like i said they didn't know what she what yeah. they had you had a top-notch actress yeah. that you could have used and it, you didn't you could have been planting the seeds for what you're doing now years yeah. ago yeah. and you just <laughs> flat out refused much like the farmer from the good earth so yeah that's anime wong she's really cool style in all the old pictures you see of her like she's always the best dressed but then again like there's so much more to her than just that before we sum up we have our listener question oh uh, yeah we didn't do it we put it at the end tucked it away at the end Mm. this one is from emilio what's the dealio on instagram third host ghost host he's the uh helen lou fong of our (laughs) arme and davis so his question is what are the best shows about la this was a hard one this was hard when he first said this i thought easy peasy but yeah the second i I thought about it like I, I i don't know a part of me was like oh arrested development well that's more orange, orange county, county. And they, <laughs> yeah, it's famously orange county famously orange county you mentioned curb your enthusiasm yeah. which is i think i think is a great one it shows such a idealized like what i would love my life in yeah. los angeles to be like the of the idle rich but it's <laughs> it has such a great los angeles feel there is really something i think when you're on that tier that larry david is you just keep running into people famous yeah. people and then just like you fight with valet people yeah as you're going to eat out three meals a day <laughs> in restaurants did you come up with some more mine are not like curb was my best one because that's the one that i'm probably like is yeah. passionate about la i haven't seen all of dragnet but dragnet right. old dragnet was a lot yeah. of old la stuff well which, there's also like emergency and adam 12 right, like, adam those 12. are those are all of chips um <laughs> can't do chips anywhere else uh california is pretty big <laughs> it's not lapes it's chips the i love lucy a season where they come to hollywood is yeah. some of the best hollywood tv even though a lot of it it's was not a season though that was like three episodes no so. I think it's like six episodes, but fair. Okay. It's not. It's yeah. like the Brady Bunch is quintessential Southern California, I think. Right. And let's not forget the friggin' Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Lest we forget. Lest we forget one of the funniest shows. We would be remiss to not mention. It's about a family that moves from Palmdale to Beverly Hills. <laughs> 
<laughs> my other ones I have Mr. Mayor I think you should oh, watch right. that it's yeah. not really about it but it's like a cartoon version of LA almost yeah. which is good and also I really like that show Barry oh, okay, Barry yeah. is very very LA there Barry often, is Barry LA oh Greg I saw what you did yeah. um, it's very good too <laughs> like there's a character named NoHo Hank so it's it's very much infused with the valley and Hollywood Malcolm in the Middle oh you're right which is not explicitly Los Angeles but it is filmed all over LA and it yeah. f- looks and feels a lot like LA yeah this is a this is a stretch but Zorro okay I'll but, I'll, I'll, the Zorro I'll TV it. show because it all takes place in Los Angeles <laughs> a fake Los Angeles of 200 years ago but Los Angeles nonetheless <laughs> that's a great one and then you know like that and Lone Ranger and things that are all over the hills of Chatsworth yeah. and stuff here's a really weird specific thing that I thought of though when I'm watching like me TV or something like yeah. that I like at the end of old shows I'm watching them late at night I'm watching yeah. like I don't Batman or Lost in Space or something like that yeah. and at the end of these shows from the 50s and 60s after the credits it's like a thing that says filmed in Studio City yeah. or filmed at uh, Television City in yeah. Hollywood I love that uh, me too yeah I love knowing that it's like oh that's right down the road filmed in front of a live studio audience in Los Angeles California whatever you're right I love those Adam West Batman is another one where it's like I think I know where that's at I think I can find the Batmobile hey if you have a listener question for us you can please we we need more send us an email la.meekly at gmail.com or message us on Instagram la underscore meekly also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at la meekly those are the best ways to send your emails and messages but also subscribe to us on YouTube we're trying to get more subscribers on there Uh, we have all of the episodes segmented up if you want to hear just like oh I want I want to hear the thing about Googie I want to hear the thing about Chinatown you could go back to that and we have some video content and there should be more very very some yeah (laughs) subscribe to us on Patreon we are an independently made podcast and we would depend on people like you to keep us going because we may or may not have had an ad in the middle of this episode (laughs) maybe we just stopped talking for two minutes and just let air seep (laughs) into the microphone that's that's air that's that's worth some good money that dead air we let die for those who don't know for five dollars a month on our Patreon we will send you a handwritten postcard every single month every single month less than five dollars you can just support us and we will also say your name on the show that's right so yeah this has been uh, our Asian American pride episode and yeah it's I know this isn't the case there's racism against everybody happening at all times but I felt like a few months ago all of the racist people hate black people and then it switched to all the racist people hate Asian people yeah a lot of attacks happening yeah and then like what you know first they came for first they came for black people first they came like how what's like next maybe they'll come for Jewish people again you know how many yeah no I know exactly what you're saying yeah just if there's not a unity against these races yeah let's all stick together yeah and also these people are not the majority these bad people are not winning yeah they're just louder than most people that's all let's all be in this together together (laughs) (laughs) but yeah hey great job great great job job. and now for the ceremonial praising of each other for (laughs) for the work we did in this Um, have a good may everybody mother mother may you all and maybe who knows maybe Maybe. june will be our indoor episode who knows who knows who knows when uh, the next pandemic is going to hit and wipe us all out who knows knows? (laughs) the shadow knows (laughs) enjoy may we'll see you in june and uh that's been yet another episode of la meekly just like idra sometimes the bad guy sometimes a good guy since 2013 Ghidra makes my favorite Godzilla kaiju monster noise they all have their distinct noise Ghidra's my favorite is that that what Ghidra sounds like he's like I I can't even do it because I'm not an alien from space oh that's fair you know (laughs) and that is fair you know what I won't hold you to the fire on that (laughs) one